Hello, this is Dr. Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Joining us today is Heidi J. Engel, PT, DPT, of UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, California. She is with us today to further discuss her presentation at the annual Congress regarding early mobility implementation strategies. It sounds as though you have a fairly successful implementation of an early mobility program, and I was wondering what prompted uh, your involvement and how you got started. I actually got started because I worked with uh, liver transplant and hematological oncology, and the physical therapists were a service-based entity at that time. So you followed your patient around the hospital wherever they went if they were from those two services that I was assigned to. So liver transplant patients and people in a hematological oncology service often go into the ICU. And I would follow the patients in there and I would go in and look at them and they'd be lying in bed sedated and wonder what am I supposed to do with these people? Um, Or sometimes I would be consulted for someone who'd had a liver transplant and there were complications and they were in the ICU for a long time and the surgeons felt like this has been two weeks since the person's surgery, maybe we should try getting them moving. And I always went in with the same thought. I have, like, this person looks sedate and attached to a whole lot of things. I have no idea what I should be doing with them. So I started to do some research. The only people who had written or published anything was LDS Medical Center in Salt Lake City. But what they had published was very intriguing because it was all about walking their ventilated patients, which I didn't even think was possible at the time. So between that and between having one patient in particular who was a liver transplant patient who was a complicated second liver transplant in the ICU on mechanical ventilation, he was a nurse and his family were all nurses. And I had a referral to go in and see him and I went up to his bedside. He was actually awake and his family was present and the nurse said, Well, I'm glad you came because his family has been bugging me all morning long about how I need to get him up, and I think that's a ridiculous idea. (laughs) But I told them that you were going to come. So I did, and I walked in, and I assessed the patient, and the nurse said, I really don't think it's a good idea, and the family was standing there saying, we think you should do it. And the patient was nodding his head like, yes, you should do this. And so I said, they're okay with it. And she said, I want no part of it. And I said, well, let's try it. We did. He did better than I ever expected. I said to the liver transplant fellow after that experience of seeing this patient doing much better than we expected, I said, I think the reason why that guy did so well is because we got him up moving while he was still in the ICU rather than our usual practice of waiting till he was out of there. And the fellow said, I agree. We should be doing that for all our patients here. Who's going to get that started? And I looked at him and I said, well, you would be ideal because you're the doctor. And he said, I'm out of here next year. I'm a fellow. He said, you should do it. And so I thought, well, yeah, we should do this for our patients. And I went up to the head of critical care, or the guy actually thought was the head of critical care at UCSF at the time, and said, what would you think about an ICU early mobility program here? And he said, it's an excellent idea. Come into my office. I have friends at Johns Hopkins who are getting that going there, and you know, I'll connect you to them. And the people at Johns Hopkins were incredibly generous. Dale Needham, who is the head of their mobility program, 
was incredibly generous with resources, information, collaboration. He said, go to these conferences, talk to these people, go see LDS Medical Center. And I did all of it, and I came back to UCSF, and I said, doesn't this sound great? And everyone went, no, it sounds like a lot of work, and the evidence isn't very compelling, one crazy little you know, ICU in Salt Lake City. So, so mostly we had to just keep chipping away at it. Found the champions who thought it was a good idea, who thought it would best serve the patients, work with the patients and families who were fully invested and on board and enthusiastic about this. Let the staff in the ICU see how much better those patients that we started mobilizing early did, and then get more converts as more converts came along, use them as champions. We did all kinds of um, education, like every version of cross-disciplinary education to all the services that we could. And, and just it's still an ongoing process of, of teaching, collaborating, marketing in a certain way. So are there continued barriers uh, at this time? Or? Absolutely. I think the biggest barriers are kind of still working on the culture of understanding that the mobility is as important as the patient's antibiotics. We can't put it off as sort of, well, it'll be nice to get to that if we can today, and if we don't, oh, well, tomorrow's another day. You know, you would not deny your patient the antibiotics that have been prescribed to them We have to start adapting the value system that says mobility is as important as the medications we need to give our patients to help them get better. You wouldn't put off giving them their antibiotics for their infection because you know it's crucial they get that and they get it now. Um, You need to to embrace mobility as, as the same sort of valuable treatment for your patients and it has to be near the top of your priority list and not, well, if we get to it, that will be nice. So getting that mindset in amongst the entire staff that have to be involved in this process is, is an ongoing challenge. It's a psychological and cultural change. On top of that, sedation. On top of that, the uh, fear of something happening to the patient or something happening to the provider. You know, I get a lot of questions about, well, what do you do with those morbidly obese patients? And then it's labor-intensive, and it becomes a huge challenge to convince an administration that you actually can't do this with a machine or just a protocol or a checklist. You're actually going to need to have sets of hands in there. Not every set of hands in the ICU is going to have to be skilled, you know, or or trained especially to, to make this happen. And I've done my best to utilize students and volunteers and family members as sort of my extra set of hands. But there's no getting around with all those things that the patients are attached to that somebody has to push the IV pole. Somebody has to have a chair nearby for when the patient gets tired. Someone has to be behind the patient when they're sitting on the edge of the bed if they're so weak that they might fall over backwards. I can't do it with a machine. Has, has your program required uh, additional staffing, either therapists, nurses, nurse assistants? The initial approach to the administration, we had actually an administrative champion. So when we created our first, first, 
first step, created the multidisciplinary team. So we had physical therapist, physician, nurse practitioner, nurse, nurse manager, respiratory therapist, and then we had an administrative champion who was a really key person because she was literally someone one step below the, the CEO at the medical center. And we gave her as much as we could. And again, John Topkin was very generous because they gave us their financials to use and we plugged our numbers into their financial data that they had gotten and said, okay, we'll be conservative and if we get half the result as what they got in terms of savings because of their better outcomes, even though they added physical therapy and occupational therapy staff. So they paid brand new salaries for full-time PT and OT in their ICU, but saved so much money that they still came out ahead because it more than offset the salaries of the PT and the OT. So we said, give us a a trial period of a full-time physical therapist in one ICU. We'll collect data And if we can demonstrate even half the savings that that Hopkins demonstrated by adding physical therapy staff to their ICU, we'll still come out ahead. And so the administration went for it. Our administrative champion is the one who made that look all good with numbers and graphs and charts and and sold that to the administration. Um, And we had the same result. So we had a full-time physical therapist added to one 16-bed medical surgical ICU That therapist was dedicated first and foremost to be full-time in the ICU, and um, we still came out ahead because, again, we had such an improvement in our our outcomes. And again, it it wasn't just because we were mobilizing the patients, but it's sort of all these things you do to make the patient able to be mobile. You keep them awake, and you interact with them so they're less delirious, and you treat their pain more, and these are all things that are part of the you know, best practices, but the mobility helps make you put all that in line so it can happen. And can I ask, um, I guess some of the specifics, but I think a lot of ICUs, and more and more certainly as, as more literature evolves as well to support progressive mobility or early mobility, still struggle with the actual implementation. And so if I could ask kind of some specific questions about your program. Mm-hmm. For instance, are there certain contraindications uh, or, or patients that you don't mobilize? And, you know, I think different disciplines and different units seem to have different notions about what might be an appropriate patient um, or what devices prohibit people from getting out of bed. So I wonder about some of those specifics. So the device issue is easy because there's now good literature to support that pretty much any device actually is mobile. Um, So, for example, previously we had a written nurse policy that said anyone with a femoral line could not get up out of bed. There's now two studies that demonstrate you can get people with femoral lines up out of bed and nothing happens. So we utilized that evidence to change that nursing policy, for example. We get up people with uh, PA lines, people on ECMO, people with on the continuous dialysis. So there, the device issue, I think, is pretty much done, gone as an excuse. The, the only right. line that keeps patients in bed for us at our institution right now is a femoral dialysis catheter. 
we have so few of those and and the team really specifically tries to to make everything subclavian so that it can't be an issue that it's not it's not a great barrier that's really a truly the only line that we haven't gotten around in terms of being able to get people up out of bed so that issue's gone Continued barriers or implementation? Um, I guess yeah, the other group of patients, um, or I guess how sick um, of a patient the, will, you, will you get up and move? How sick the patient is? I mean, if someone is demonstrating the, the vital signs of an acutely septic person, uh, you know, with high lactate levels and, you know, low blood pressure and, and a new uh, new need for presser medications that they didn't previously have on board, we won't move that patient. They just seem too unstable. If that's someone that's on such extraordinary event settings that they have to be sedated and put on neuromuscular blockades, which is actually a very, very small percentage of our patients now, we won't get them up. I have a very strong feeling about if a patient is really in the terminal stages of their life and mobility is is not comfortable for them, if it actually causes them more pain and distress, I, I will stop seeing them, even though they might still stay in the ICU for a while after that. But I feel pretty strongly that that's not a very effective use of me as a resource, and I feel very strongly that... You know, it's not really giving the patient quality of life at the end of life. By contrast, if it is a palliative patient and getting them up and moving them gives them time to be awake and alert and interactive with their family in a way that they're not when they're lying in bed, or if this was a person who was who used activity, athleticism in throughout their life as something that they used as a coping mechanism or was really important to them and they love to move even though they're dying, I will still go in and work with them. So that's a, you know, that's a very patient-specific question in that way. Anything else pretty much goes, I have to say. And I, and I always emphasize in all my talks that I've been a physical therapist for 27 years, and still the patients continue to amaze me with how much they do typically better than I expect they will you would really be surprised and there is and that includes there's a there's a segment of patients I'm going to give you an example so we recently had a patient 86 year old lady came into the hospital didn't speak English her family wasn't with her to translate well for us she was someone who at baseline had you know some diabetes some heart disease a little lung disease she got pneumonia so she's a little septic on top of everything. She has some mild dementia at baseline. So I went in to see her really, she was admitted, you know, in the night, and I was there the following day to go in and get her up. They spent the night, the morning, early part of the afternoon kind of getting her medically stable. She looked stable and good. And that afternoon, I went in and I got her up on the side of the bed. She was following some of my commands. She had a lot of fluid in her. She, you know, like I said, mild baseline dementia and not English speaking. But we sat her up on the side of the bed. And what you do is you sit someone like that up on the side of the bed. And it's really me lifting them into that position. And you talk to them and you, you know, try to help them stretch and move a little. And you give it 10 minutes. 
And in 10 minutes, you're either going to see someone sort of continue to look profoundly tired and sick, and you're going to lie them back down, or you're going to see someone sort of kind of suddenly emerge from this fog that they were lying there in and look alert and look kind of better, and you'll keep them sitting there for a while. And you would be amazed at how the investment of that seemingly very little bit of activity has this huge dividend. So this 86-year-old woman, we go in, we sit her up on the side of the bed, she's all foggy for, like I said, 10 or 15 minutes, but her vital signs did not change dramatically. My understanding was she could walk at baseline, so I tried to get her to stand up, but her legs were just not working. But she was sitting on the side of the bed really great, and at that moment, a family member came in. So we sat the family member down next to her, She didn't need any added support. We put pillows behind her in case she might start to fall one way or another. The nurse was sort of there. The um, family member was there sitting next to her. And we said, well, we'll just leave her sitting here for a while and see what happens. She sat there for 45 minutes. She looked fine. She got a little tired at the end of the 45 minutes. We went in. We put her back in bed. Okay. The next day I went in, she was... Alert, interactive, I got her up, she walked a little bit with a walker, and I really don't think we would have been at that phase of her capability on that next day if we hadn't done all that other sitting on the edge of the bed, having the family interact with her the day before. So really the best thing is, when in doubt, just give it a try. If it's not working, you can always have the person lie back down. You always take it one step, trying to do some exercises in the bed. Look at everything. Is the patient making eye contact? Are the vital signs still looking stable? Yes. Okay, let's take it to the next step, sitting on the edge of the bed. Okay, are they looking good here? Yeah, well, maybe they could stand up. Let's see, can they move their legs when I ask them to? Yes, okay. Oh, do their legs look strong? Yes. Were they walking before they came into the hospital? Yes. Okay, let's get them up and see if they can sit in a chair for a little while. And you just take it step by step. So her her final step that day was sitting on the edge of the bed. She just couldn't process how to get her legs working. That's where we left her for that day. But I think, you know, in the past, you never would have thought of moving someone like her. She really, 86, demented, not language, a little septic. But we did, and it was a really valuable investment. You know, she walked the next day. She walked even better the day after that. She was smiling. She was laughing. She left the ICU. You know, she spent, I think, half a day in a regular hospital room. She went home with her family. She didn't go to a nursing home. So. That's great. You know, I think many of us have those types of anecdotal, you know, it it clearly seems to make sense. It's clearly working. I, I do wonder, and, and perhaps you can speak to this in terms of making a program successful and measuring outcomes. Where you, was your program set up to measure those outcomes in advance, or did you actually implement outcome measures to, to look at and, and collect data once you started the program? Yes. So we, be, because we had renegotiated with our administration for a trial period, a pilot study, we needed outcome measures to sort of help bolster our case to keep the new position we had created, which was a full-time physical therapist for this ICU, 
And I want to say one of the main reasons why I pushed for having the full-time physical therapist stationed in the ICU because my experience as a therapist who had duties on the regular hospital floor and duties in the ICU going in and out, you miss the window of time that the patient is really able to best participate in mobilizing. You know, they're not at a CT scan. Nobody's trying to put a line in them. They're not having dialysis. The team's not rounding on them. You know, they haven't just gotten some, you know. ICU patients are very busy in in this kind of weird way. And finding that window of time in the day when you can optimally work with them, you have to sort of hover around the ICU set up that window, pick it, and be able to go to it, not be out on the floor at that time. So, yeah, we took his outcome measures, you know, all the things that you already, most ICUs are already measuring in terms of the ventilator-acquired pneumonias and the skin breakdown, you know, that's pretty much already set in in motion. The next things we looked at were um, length of ventilation time, and uh, how long they were in the ICU, their length of stay in the hospital, and then where they went, which is an outcome measure that's really important to me, is, you know, can we use this as a way to help our patients go home rather than go to a skilled nursing facility? And I have to say that one way I promoted this was to go to our CEO office hours and sit down with him and say, here's what I want to do in our ICU. And, and the reason why is because I think more patients will go home. And this would switch a light on in his head because he said, that's great because we have patients where there's no nursing home beds available to, for them. There's no sniff bed available if we could just rather send them home. You know, in his thinking, it was, we have a bit, we have an open bed now for our patient. And my thinking it is, that's where people do the best anyway. If you can send them home, let's get them there. So have you been able to find some trends in terms of people going home more so than nursing facilities? Or? Yeah, so we did have, um, as, as one of our more positive outcomes when we were looking at that, um, we did have that they... Uh, more people went home as opposed to skilled nursing facility. There's a, a barrier to that in that we end up with patients leaving the ICU, being pretty mobile and active, getting to the floor and sitting in bed. <laughs> We've had people ask to go back to the ICU so they can get better physical therapy. We've had um, doctors not want the patient to leave. Let's just keep them another day because they'll get all that physical therapy. <laughs> So this, this is something that you end up seeing as a larger and larger issue to, to tackle and a larger cultural change to try to bring about. So yeah, we have had those good outcomes. What we continue to look at now is how timely we're able to start physical therapy versus when the patient comes into the ICU. So are we getting to the patients as early as, as we think we are? Are we getting to as many patients as in our heads we think we are? And are, you know, I'm breaking that down right now in our mechanically ventilated patients versus our non-mechanically ventilated patients because I think there's still, at our institution anyway, a real lag from being mechanically ventilated in terms of when we start seeing the patient. And if you read the literature, the literature is is saying, you know, you should be getting to your mechanically ventilated patients within 48 hours of their intubation or admission. And I don't think we're doing that with our ventilated patients. So it's hard because 
once you get the program started, your tendency is to want to say, okay, great, we got that going, on to the next thing. But then what happens is, is the momentum dies down and you continue to think you're doing this great job of mobilizing your patients, but you need to continue the data collection to, to really truly determine if you're doing what you think you're doing. What, what do you think is getting in the way of, of seeing those patients and, or working with those patients within that first 48 hours? Sedation. So sedation practice, and I will still hear that, oh, you know, let's not get them moving, they're withdrawing from alcohol, oh, let's not get them moving, they're agitated, oh, let's not get them moving, you know, it'll be dangerous, they're too delirious, um, not realizing that the, the only somewhat proven treatment for all of those situations is to get the person moving. So... That's a barrier. The sedation for the mechanically ventilated patients, they're they, they're still sedated too much to be able to participate, or practitioners are still afraid of tubes coming out, and then just also uh, staff turnover. So you know we have a large teaching hospital. There's a new attending every week. There's a constant cycle of residents and fellows and nurses, and you know that's another another barrier. It is a time-consuming, labor-intensive process. It is not easy to move an ICU patient. It's hard. It's very hard work. It's physically demanding work for me. It's just that you. it pays off pretty quickly, and it pays off dramatically. So it's worth the initial hard effort. Day one is really hard, but your day two is a lot easier than your pre- your day two would be if you left them in bed day one. You have to sort of be able to have faith in that. And unless you've really seen it, I think, in action yourself, you, you it's hard to be invested in that idea. You certainly have quite a bit of passion and energy for this, this project, and I, I suspect um, that you were quite responsible for, more, for the most part for getting this uh, to be a successful program. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there uh, any other words of wisdom that you'd like to pass on that might help someone uh, struggling in their ICU to get a program started? You know, I think I'm such a persistent person when I am passionate about something that it's annoying to people who are not as equally persistent and passionate but this is the one area where you couldn't apply too much persistence. <laughs> so it's suiting me well at this point. Because I did honestly think that, oh, I'll spend a couple of years getting this up and running and then I'll be off to some, you know, I'll go do something else because I have other projects that I want to work on as well. And, you know, now five years later, I feel like I still have five more years of kind of being physically invested in this in this project to keep it going so initially I didn't realize how much I would have to keep redoing and re-educating and and um you know you're going to find your champions in your unit but your champions you know when they're gone who's they're taking their place keeping the program going and so the champions have to train other people to be champions when they're not there and you have to build depth into your championing staff and that takes time value adaption cultural change 
and a lot of persistence. Everyone has to find their uh, Heidi angle. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But then the Heidi angles have to train more, so there's, there's not just one. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been informative and, and enjoyable. Thank Great. You. Thank you. All right. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the iCriticalCare Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email i critical care at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.